everybody welcome to the 216th edition of the holy backboard podcast i am dustin here in rip city and i got my man sage chilling here in uh, beaverton oregon and man it people have asked for it and we're delivering the dustin ted talk are you excited about diving deep into one of your most passionate things and sharing your thoughts and opinions with the world Absolutely. Uh, this really all came about from one of those random tweets that that start to go viral. And the account was Khalil underscore for real came out about two weeks ago. And it's just like, if you could speak passionately about a topic for 20 minutes without preparing, what would you talk about? And immediately I was like, the 89-92 Trailblazers and why they should have won a championship. It got some pretty good traction on my uh, personal social. And so I just threw the question out there. Would people be interested in me kind of just doing a deep dive on the early 90s Blazers on Holy Backboard? And the response was pretty positive. So uh, this was something that you know I've been looking forward to for, for quite some time. So I did do like a little bit of research just numbers wise but you know everything is 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 really right right in the dome right here you're gonna go straight from the heart with it and like i already know like (laughs) this is gonna be very well researched but most of it's coming from the dome piece off the dome so i definitely am excited i mean this is this is something that i guess i was alive for but barely i was born in 91 so you've had you've had your experiences growing up with these teams so it's a different type of dedication that you have these teams so i'm very excited to just let you spit your truth and uh man i was so bored i was like dude do you want to just do do you just want to record today instead of waiting till the weekend sometimes this this quarantine can be kind of kind of boring so i'm very happy to be here with you um you know, it, it's funny that we are now at 216 and a podcast that has been in the Blazers Blazers community for the last seven years just ended at episode 215. And for me, when we first started it, it was like the gold standard of what we had to be and try and be better than. So to see them ending with, you know, on the same episode we ended on is kind of like, okay, we got to pay homage to them and what they did at, with the Rip City Report. And I know you have actually, you're friends with Casey. I've only talked online with him about stupid stuff on Rip City, <laughs> Rip City One back in like 2011. <laughs> yeah, I, I listened. If there was a Blazer podcast, I would listen to the Rip City Report. Um, I don't always listen to podcasts. I have to be in the right frame of mind. Um, I usually, when I listen... I really listen intently. I can't just have it on as background noise like most people do in music. So I really have to have a task at work that I can just kind of uh, do off of muscle memory so I can really intently listen. listen. And when there was big news, like that was the one I always wanted to listen to when I had to commute for work. I would put that one on first and foremost. It's crazy that it started in 2013 because that's when I was still working for the team. 
I was the one sending out those tweets, those Facebook posts, uh, when it first launched thinking of bylines and copy and what it was all about um, to inform our, our audience. And, you know, I left uh, after the 2014 season and, and they really, really took it from there. They got like a sweet intro. It's the Rashid and Damon Stoudemire beat nuts, uh, no escape in this, which is a dope song, but with a blazer twist. And then obviously they used, uh, the media day to their advantage. They got all of the players to, to give sweet intros like, hi, you know, I'm Damien Lillard. You listen to the Rip City Report. Um, so that, that added like a really nice touch to it. Uh, it was really good balance too, because you had Casey who worked with the team, traveled with the team, built these relationships with the players. And then you have uh, Joe Freeman, who has been in the business for nearly two decades, coming at it from just a traditional journalist, you know, no fan, no emotion. It really involved a uh, point of view. So you kind of get a nice little balance. Um, it wasn't too cynical. It wasn't too, there wasn't too much homerism. It was a really good mix. And I, I really do think the Oregonian is making a big mistake trying to do their own podcast network. Like last I checked, they're still getting marketed as Casey Holdall from troublesses.com and Joe Freeman from the Oregonian. Uh, as Casey mentioned on that last episode, if it was up to the Blazers, this podcast would still be going on. So I think they missed the mark completely. But the Oregonian has been making foolish decisions for the last 10 plus years. So it's really no surprise. It's just a bummer that, you know, we don't get to hear that for their community. I think the community is the suffers the most. Um, and I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, K- Casey Lance. Um, I know he did a podcast with Brooke Olsendam. Um, I think it was First Bus. Obviously, they can't do that one because they're not traveling with the team. But just hearing the behind the scenes of those road trips was great. Um, Because, again, back when I was working social, social was really low totem pole. We were not traveling. I would only work, uh, go to the games. um, They were at home. So I didn't really get to experience it. So it's me. It's a way for myself to kind of live vicariously um, if I was able to travel back in the day. So, uh, you know, definitely... Uh, shout out RIP, what, whatever. It was uh, one of the GOAT Blazer podcasts and uh, it will be missed. I mean, you can see there was, you know, everyone was paying their respects in in the comments and, you know, we were fortunate enough to get a shout out from Casey. And so that, that meant a lot to me. Uh, but yeah, it was just a great podcast and hopefully it wasn't the final one, you know, a couple years down the road, it will make its return and that would be great for the community. Without further ado, man, give the people what they want. This is the Dustin Haas TED Talk about the Portland Trailblazers. So I had to, I don't know if this will be shown on video or not, but if you're not, you know, I've got my my Terry Porter, Zubaz, Snapback. I've got my Kevin Duckworth champion on. Like the 89 to 92 Trailblazers shaped who I am as as a person. They play a huge role in my life. Um, For those that don't know, I was looking to finish off my... um, uh, studies. I had gotten my junior college or my um, community college associate's degree. I had two years left. I was down to the University of Oregon or Portland State. Well, what happened to happen is the Blazers won the lottery in 2007 and your boy wanted season tickets. That was an easy decision for me. I decided to go to Portland State so I could get season tickets for the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, that's how big of a role they play uh, in my life. And it all stems back to the early, the early Blazers. Um, and it's not just that they were a basketball team in the state that I happened to live in. It was the fact that they were a team. Um, they were great players on and off the court. 
and and they won. And that that means a lot when you're a young mind and you're starting to get, you know, shaping your opinions on what you like and what you don't like. I didn't have any ties to basketball. I, I happened to stumble across some basketball cards at, at a um, a parking lot barbecue we did in front of my uh, fundraiser in front of my dad's store. And it's like, Oh, the Blazers, like this is, this is pretty rad. And then I come to find out one of the best teams in the league, like that, that plays, that plays a role. Like had they been a mediocre or a bad team, who knows, maybe I follow Jordan and then I start player hopping like, like a lot of fans do today, or maybe I pick up the Blazers later on in life, but they were good. They were elite. And I fell in love and just how elite they were. They had a combined record of 179 and 67 over a three-year span. They averaged 60 wins over a three-year span, second only to the Chicago Bulls, who had 183 wins. Um, in 90-91, they even had 63 tops in in the NBA. Like they were dominant. And it it all started. And this is another reason why I'm really passionate about it because it feels like they were built the right way. It wasn't the a Miami big three where they all decided to team up together in free agency. It was built through the draft and through really shrewd trades. And what I love about it is a lot of the players they picked, none of them would be considered lottery picks in, in today's NBA. And a, quite a few of them were, were small school success stories. So if we take a step back before we actually dive into the 89-90 season, you just look at how well Stu Inman and Bucky Buckwalter and that front office did in the mid eighties. You look at 1983, they're picking number 14. They take Clyde Drexler. Drexler is a bonafide top 50 player of all time. He was one of only five all-stars from that draft class. Everyone remembers the 84 for the first round. Yes, it was a big toast of taking Sam Bowie over the likes of Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan and losing the coin flip to get Hakeem Olajuwon but they still did an just an incredible job in the second round. They found a kid from Longwood, Virginia, Jerome Kersey in the second round, 46th overall player taken. Kersey would go on to have a 10 plus year career in, in Rip City, be one of the most beloved players of all time. The next year, 85, they're picking late again in the first round, pick number 24. They pick Terry Porter, who played at Wisconsin Stevens Point. The level of, uh, of competition is NAIA. And to put that into perspective for all of our Oregon fans around here, OIT down in Klamath Falls, that is an NAIA school. So that is the, the, how tiny Terry Porter was playing at. And he was playing center. Portland gets him. He becomes one of 10 all-stars from that 85 draft class in 86. 86 is, in my opinion, one of the greatest draft classes in Blazer history. In the first round, they take Arvidas Sabonis. And at the time, taking foreign players, especially in the first round, everyone called the Blazers mad. Like, what wasted pick. I mean, the media was, was all over Portland for, for making that pick. Then they go, and then they take Drazen Petrovic in, in the third round. 60th player overall. They goofed up their first round pick. They had another one. They took Walter Berry, but they, they atoned for that quickly. They said, you're not working out. We're going to go and get this guy from San Antonio. 
Eastern Illinois, Kevin Duckworth. Well, what does Duck do? Two-time All-Star, 87-88, most improved player. I was just reading one of uh, my Blazer books, and Duck w- was pretty shocked when the Blazers took Sabonis because he thought he had a promise that Portland was going to take him. Well, it didn't happen that way, but we did get him during his rookie year. Uh, and then they just they followed it up just so smart in, in 89. Uh, Cliff Robinson, for whatever reason, had character issues or – his reputation what was damaged should have gone top 10, top 15 based upon talent alone. For some reason slips to the second round, number 36 overall. He becomes one of nine all-stars in that draft class. So Portland built that team. They built the heart of the team through that draft. And so you're looking at four starters, Drexler, Porter, Duckworth, and Kersey. Clearly Petro doesn't come over until the 89 season. And due to the what was then the Soviet Union, they would not allow Arvidas Sabonis to come over. We did not get to see Sabonis until the 95-96 season. Portland just really was never able to put it all together. They were they were clearly missing a player, it, it, the missing piece. I mean, everything was there. They just they couldn't get past the Lakers. They really couldn't finish in the top four of the conference. They, they blew a, a lead in the first round against the Utah Jazz with home court advantage. Um and it was time to make a change. Well, they made one of the best trades in franchise history. During this run, they made probably the best and the worst trade in franchise history. But that's just kind of how it goes when, you know, you're talking about the ebbs and the flows of an NBA front office. That things tend to, to even themselves out. But we'll start with the positive. And it was trading Sam Bowie in a first-round pick to get former all-star Buck Williams from the New Jersey Nets. Uh, Buck was just a monster. I mean, just a monster defensive player. If you look at Maurice Lucas, you can kind of see similar things when you're looking at Buck Williams. He's going to be your enforcer. He's going to, you can put him on the block against the premier power forward and you don't have to worry about him. Buck will make that power forward work for everything that he's got. Fantastic rebounder, uh, led the NBA in field goal percentage during this stretch. So you knew that Buck wasn't going to complain about shots. He filled a role of defensive, defensive tenacity, intelligence, and rebounding, and his character fit like a glove. Like once they had that player, Portland was set. So you, you got your starting five, you got Cliff Robinson, and the Blazers, they really surprised a lot of people. And they finished with 59 wins, um, second most in the NBA. They are a three seed due to the Lakers being the, the division winners, they were the one seed. So back then it was division kind of ranked the, the teams. We start off hot, sweeping the Dallas Mavericks. And, and I, I rewatched, let me take it a step back. I, I've, I've watched nearly every playoff game that I can find from the 90 through 92 runs. Um, on a personal note, I was unemployed for about four or five months last summer in 2019 And then clearly we've had the pandemic hit since March. So I've been at home. A lot of my, a lot of source of my entertainment came from going on YouTube and and watching these old games and and studying them and seeing how the team played and what went right, what went wrong. Like I was five years old when this first started. So I, I vaguely remember actually watching the games live. It's, you know, you know, thankful for, for YouTube for having these games really at my fingertips because I can go back and I can see some plays that I haven't seen before. I've really had these video yearbooks um, that, that detailed, they're about 45 minutes long. They detailed 
90, 91, 92 seasons. And I watched those like ad nauseum as a kid. So I, I was familiar with plays and obviously scores and what happened, but going back and watching the games, you know, seeing how momentum changed when Portland was really able to just flourish in what was their downfall. Um, me being like a, what if type of person, I was like, to know, like, man, what if they would have done something different here? This is really kind of what, what this is all, you know, coming into fruition about it is just talking about this with, with all of you and seeing what if, like, what if the Blazers would have done something different, but in that 1990 playoff run, watching that first game against Dallas, a, a lot of the chatter from the announcers was like, there's a lot of pressure on this team. They've only made it out of the first round once since winning that 77 championship. Um, that, that was their, that was their biggest hurdle. Like, could they mentally get over that? I mean, they take care of Dallas. I mean, draws in and Danny young and game two, really saved the day in that second quarter. Uh, we were down big and go down to Dallas and they, they get the sweep um, of these three eras. This was the only first round sweep. It came with a cost. Kevin Duckworth breaks, I believe his, his left hand and Buck Williams really gets a, his eye scratched, causing him to wear his traditional goggles the rest of his career. A uh, Wayne Cooper even got dinged up, causing him to miss a couple of games against the Spurs, but they, they escaped 3-0. And now you're looking at a team that is going up against the rookie of the year in David Robinson, the San Antonio Spurs. Now, this wasn't your ordinary rookie. He was 24 years old. He uh, fulfilled his commitment to the Naval Academy. So he came in a couple of years later than when he was drafted. And the guy was, he could play in today's NBA. I mean, just so fluid, incredible athlete, could shoot, could defend, could block, rebound clearly one of the top 25, 30 players of all time, easy. Now you're Rick Adelman. What do you do? No Duckworth. And you you can't really play Buck Williams on him. He puts in the rookie Cliff Robinson and he goes off to show why he would also be a perfect modern NBA big, able to guard three through five, can shoot, can, can rebound, can block shots. He stifles Robinson in game one. And it's really a game of who has home court advantage and watching those games. Like there, there's still parts of it where I wonder how did we get, get, get out of there. Um, there was a 22 point lead that we blew in, in game five, it went into overtime. David Wingate hits a crazy three. We, we come back and win in game seven. We are down like seven points with two minutes to go. And then Drexler hits a three and there's a flurry. Strickland throws the ball over his head and then they have to intentionally foul Drexler. It was just one of those, like, is this a team of destiny? Because when we were going down to San Antonio, we were getting just killed and we were barely scraping by at home. And that was because back then they would play games like one day, sometimes back to back. Like there was not a lot of there was not a lot of rest in between and they weren't traveling. Yes, they had blazer one, but they weren't traveling like they're traveling now. And they were tired. They were without Cooper for a couple of games. Duckworth made that incredible comeback at the start of game seven, where the crowd stood up and just cheered. That's one of my favorite moments of all time. Just, you know, seeing Duckworth and there's, he's even interviewed in that 1990 video yearbook return to rip city. And he's even said, like, if I had a tear to shed, it would have fell down my face that day. Like, and Duckworth was such a gentle giant that like anytime that he was happy, I feel happy because I feel like if I was a player, 
I would be Kevin Duckworth. I'm pretty thin skinned. And I think the criticism would get to me. I think it's so impressive how these athletes are able to just kind of shut out the white noise and just go on knowing that they're getting criticized with their every move. So I feel for duck. That's why he's one of my favorites. Um, but they get by him and then up next, which was kind of playing into the team of destiny was the Phoenix Suns because you have the number one seed Los Angeles Lakers. They got knocked out in five. This Phoenix team was coming in with Kevin Johnson, Jeff Hornacek, Tom Chambers, Dan Marley. I mean, they were freaking loaded and they just handled the, the MVP magic Johnson in the 63 win Lakers like, like that they won three games in Los Angeles or two, two of the three in Los Angeles, excuse me. And now you're having to, okay, we just came off an emotional seven game series. We've got the Phoenix Suns who have had nine days off and they just found a way they were down 20 uh, at some point during the game two. And they, they found a way to come back um, all throughout the, the series. Everyone was saying it's going to be a seven game series because can't win on the road. Well, what did they do? They found a way to win in game six in Phoenix. There's that iconic shot of Williams, you know, on the, on the ground, clutching the ball as, as time runs out, they made the stop and, and you're thinking, okay, th- this could really happen. And so watching after, you know, dissecting the teams they played, who was on the roster, who was at their peak. 1990 was Portland's best opportunity to win a championship. And all my life, I thought it was 91 because I'm partial to that team. That was the first team that I got into. Uh, they had the 63 wins. They had the 16 game win streak leading into the playoffs. They had three all-stars. But 1990, that, that, that's the one that, that really, I think, stings if you're a Blazer fan, lifelong or not, or just, you know, you're young and you're going back and rewatching because you have the Detroit Pistons. And, and yes, you don't have home court advantage. And I, I honestly, I don't know why Detroit had home court advantage. Both teams had 59 wins. Both teams split in the regular season. So either Detroit had a better conference record against the West than we did against the East. Um who knows? But either way, we went to Detroit. We played really well. I mean, if you could go back, you really want game one back. We got outscored 29-19 in that fourth quarter. Isaiah did Isaiah things. But we bounced back. Despite six or seven threes from Bill Lambeer, we gutted out a win in Detroit. That was the only defeat the Pistons allowed at home in their new Palace of Auburn Hills in the 1990 playoffs. So Portland's coming home. I don't know if the the destiny ran out or they maybe got a little ahead of themselves being the first time that they're in the postseason. They have, they had won something like 17 or 18 straight games against the Pistons in Portland's Memorial Coliseum going into that, that finals. So you have the next three in the row city. That's all you need. You tend to think you're going to close it out. That unfortunately that that's not what happened. Um, I think people who look at it and say, oh, five-game series, Pistons handle business. No, it wasn't like that. Um, Do not be deceived by that five-game series. The average margin of victory was 5.4 points. It shrinks down to three points if you remove Game 3's 15-point outlier. Uh, Portland had so many chances to win that series. You look, Game 4, Danny Young hits that that prayer from half court, just, just milliseconds too late, which would have forced overtime. In game five, we were up seven points with under two minutes to go, um, and we just couldn't close it out. Uh, Vinny Johnson, Joe Dumars, Isaiah Thomas, they, they had all of the answers. 
Portland played great, but for all of those close wins that we had, maybe it was time again for things to even out. And regardless, you you still obviously felt great. Like Portland, okay, we're the new kings of the Pacific Division. Um, The time is ours. Like, yes, the bad boys, they got theirs, but okay, we're going to go out. And they went out and they made a trade that, looking back, may have not been the best move. they traded Byron Irvin in a first round pick. Byron Irvin was Portland's 1989 first round pick uh, out of Missouri. And Danny Ainge, that they, they traded for the former Celtic uh, champion who had played one lone year in Sacramento from Eugene, um, basically a high school legend. And they brought in Ainge, a three point marksman. And what I, I love about that is it was his experience. And when he played, for the most part, he delivered. But what hurt Portland was Ainge really wasn't able to be a combo guard. He was a two, couldn't really handle the ball. And that really threw off what Rick Adelman could do with his rotations. Um, Because you had Danny Young, who was starting to decline a little bit. And then you also now have Drexler at the two, Kersey's at the three. Okay, Cliff's nipping at the heels of Kersey to get some starting minutes. Um, Then you've got Drazen Petrovic. And... I'm going to, during this kind of talk about the Blazers and and what could have happened, there were some fan questions and I'll sprinkle them in as I uh, see them come through. The first one is from uh, Sir Sir a lot. So was trading Drazen a mistake or a horrible mistake? Uh, This was a horrible mistake. There there is no doubt about it. Uh, For those of you who have visited our website, holybackboard.com, the very first post is beyond the backboard. And we discuss the worst trades in franchise history, which ones we thought were the worst. For me, it was trading Draws and Petrovic in that three-team deal with Denver and New Jersey, uh, where we got the, the veteran Walter Davis in return. And probably a month or so ago, I uh, read The Long Hot Winter by Rick Adelman for the second time. That was a book where he kind of described the season, the 1990-91 season in detail from game to game. And from the jump, like he wasn't playing Petrovic. He said there weren't any minutes for him. And I kind of thought that was a little bit bunk because Petrov saved our our bacon quite a bit in in that postseason. And you could tell he was only getting better. He was one of the few Blazers we had who could create his own shot, um, creators on shot and he could also score off of the catch and shoot and he wasn't afraid and I think you need a little bit of that just uh gut um gusto on on your roster so getting Petrovic and seeing him blossom elsewhere really hurt especially when you look at their thought process they said they didn't want future assets for him because they want to win now but if you're saying you don't have minutes for someone to win now how did you expect to incorporate Walter Davis in um, and by this time, Walter Davis was completely washed up. I think if you think of Dell Davis, Walter Davis was two times as washed as Dell Davis was when he came to the Trailblazers. And so you really traded a future All-NBA performer for a player who only played half a season. And whenever he got in, Walter Davis did not perform. So I think that was the first major mistake the Blazers had. And I do think it cost them in that Lakers series. And that season was incredibly interesting to me because Portland was unstoppable to, to put it 
as, as bluntly as possible. They really kept the momentum from that 1990 finals run and they were the media pick to, to win it all. You know, they, they jump out 11 0, uh, 19 and 1. Uh, they end the year on a, a 16 game win streak. Um, just running through teams. They had three all-stars, uh, Drexler, Porter, Duckworth, Adelman coached them, 63 wins. They led the league. Uh, it, the championship was going to run through the Rose City and got off to a little rocky start. I, I think Portland got a tougher draw than most probably pundits thought, getting the, the, the rival Sonics. And while Portland won all five regular season games against Seattle, those games went down to the wire. There was the triple overtime thriller um, at the Seattle center Coliseum where Porter hit the three. That was probably too late in, in that second overtime, but they, they won. There was the 20 point comeback in the Tacoma dome um, side note. I wish the Sonics were back. Uh, I wish they would play games in the Tacoma dome sometimes because that would be incredibly fun to buy tickets, take a road trip up there and support your team. Like watching those highlights and hearing that the noise, it felt like a collegiate atmosphere. Um, even if we played the Sonics in a playoff series, like being able to buy tickets to, to go up there and cheer on uh, the Blazers would, would be magical. Um, but Portland, they, they were in position to sweep. They handled business fairly well um, at home. Game three, they're up two. Sedell so three sizes up Danny Ainge basically hits a buzzer beater for three. They ride that momentum into a game four victory. And back then, see, it's best of five. Portland loses first one seed to ever get upset by, by an eight seed. And now you would really feel the pressure mounting in a fishbowl town that is that is Portland, where the Blazers are the main attraction 12 months out of the calendar year. They respond, though, and they, they blow out the Sonics. The lead goes up to as much as 30, and you breathe a little bit of sigh of relief. Um Looking back, I'm almost like, how how does that happen? Like, even though, yeah, they played you tough, you're you're, you're the you're the 63 win Blazers. You, you got to handle your business, but they do that in the next round. They play the Utah Jazz, who have had their own battles um, with the Phoenix Suns, going back and forth with first round series. Is could have been Phoenix again, and Phoenix gave Portland a little bit of trouble. They gave Portland their first loss of that regular season in Portland. Um, you know, they would have been out for, for blood after that incredible Western Conference Finals the year prior. But alas, we got Stockton and Malone, a team also looking to make their mark in the Western Conference, trying to get to their first finals, and they couldn't do it. And what I love about this matchup is, yes, it's incredibly biased. It's incredibly tunnel vision. It's a small sample size, but I, I truly believe to this day, Terry Porter is a better player than John Stockton based upon how he busted his ass in 91 and in 92. Uh, Terry Porter was the engine. Um, the Blazers went as Porter went. He was, he was our captain. He was introduced last um, by, by the PA announcer. He, he just, he was our, our engineer and he, he outplayed Stockton in 91, 22.2 points per game. He, he led the Blazers in scoring nearly seven assists, nearly two steals, 50% from the field. Yes, I know Stockton's numbers are going to look pretty gaudy. 18 and a half points, 14 and a half assists, three turnovers per game. If at the very least, Porter just negated Stockton, you got Buck Williams on the other end doing yeoman's work on Carl Malone, making him work for everything he got. But that series is so beautiful to me because of game four. It was the last year. So Portland closed out two arenas. 
the Salt Palace in Utah, game four of the 91 Western Conference semifinals. And then the following year, I'm going to talk about when we do it to the Phoenix Suns at the, the Madhouse on McDowell. But back to 91, Duckworth pours in 31 points in a hostile environment. Like the Utah Jazz haven't, it's, it hasn't just been a, a recent five to 10 year phenomenon where they've been really tough to beat at home. They've always been tough to beat at home. It started with Jerry Sloan and they they boasted one of the league's best home records. You were lucky if, if you, maybe team beats them, they, they maybe lost two, three, four times a year. So to go in there to essentially say, we're going to go up three, one, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to end this series. They did it. And I, I love the fact that it was a guy like Duckworth who really probably rode off of a lot of momentum and to see him come through, you know, Porter would also run that, that pick and pop. And that was just so clutch. Like I know a lot of players or fans give Duckworth flack for maybe some performances in the postseason that, that weren't as up to standard as maybe they should have been. But when the going got tough, Duck was clutch. Um, he hit clutch buckets against the Bulls in the finals. Um, he, he's always been there for us. So to see him do that, to get through Utah, like you, as a fan, you're, you're rewatching these games and you're thinking, okay, okay, we, we go five against the Sonics. Okay. Let's chalk that up to maybe the Northwest rivalry. But then to answer that with a five-game series, 4-1 over a tough Utah team, you're feeling good going into the Western Conference Finals. And it was the matchup that everyone had wanted to see since the, the exhibition season. It was the Blazers versus the Lakers. Can Magic Johnson and James Worthy get the Lakers back to glory? Or is the Pacific Division really Portland's territory now? This is probably the series that keeps my mind wandering whenever I want to start thinking about Blazers the most um, because of the fact it really sparked my disdain for the Lakers, even though I really respect the hell out of Magic Johnson and James Worthy and those uh, Showtime Lakers. These weren't the Showtime Lakers, though. They were older. They weren't expected to be a real threat against the Blazers. They were breaking in a new rookie coach, Mike Dunleavy, who would go on to coach our Portland Trail Blazers in uh, 97, 98, 99, um, et cetera. But it, it, it's it's the one that got away to me because we had beaten the Lakers three out of um, five times in the regular season, including taking two of three down um, at the Forum in, in Inglewood. I think that Blazer team, though, for whatever reason, and it caused them to lose probably the, every series that they lost over that run was mentally they may have just not been where they needed to be. And I say that because I think they, when they were rolling like a fast break, they were a freight train that you couldn't stop them. But if something deterred it a bit, it, it almost started to go off the tracks and, and they would lose leads and they would lose them quick. And, and unfortunately, that's what happened in game one. Um, it's a game that I think longtime Blazer fans still will remember. Uh, you're up 12 going into the fourth quarter. Drexler was absolutely money. Story goes in, in the book that I referenced, The Long Hot Winter, that Clyde Drexler told Rick Alleman he needed a breather. Pundits, of course, you know, Monday morning quarterback said, no, your star players leading you. You've got to go. You've got to keep them in there. Um, I re I went back and I restarted that fourth quarter to see who was on that lineup. And I do think Rick Adelman deserves uh, a lot of criticism for his choice. Uh, he went with 
Cliff Robinson, Walter Davis, which was the first appearance of the game for Davis, Buck Williams, Danny Ainge, Kevin Duckworth. I don't know if I would have played Robinson, Williams, and Duckworth in that front court. Um, there was no backcourt uh, scoring or creation. Danny Ainge is much more of a, of a catch and shoot. What happened was it was within three minutes, the Lakers erased that lead. Portland fought hard. They had a chance to, to get back in the game. Buck Williams just a couple of free throws. And, and just like that, the Lakers came in and they, they stole home court advantage. You know, Portland was able to respond and they, they even ended up going to LA. But for whatever reason, like I said, our confidence w- was shattered. We got destroyed in, in those two games down in Southern California. And now you're, you're looking at the you know unenviable task of trying to come back 3-1 against a Magic Johnson-led team. Uh, you know, they killed them on the backboards in game five. And even in game two and game five, they weren't putting up a hundred points. I mean, they were just crashing the glass, um, doing whatever they could. You could just sense that the pressure was oozing off of them, but you know, you give yourself a chance. You, you win a game six and then the game seven's back at that crazy Coliseum game, game six. They had their chance. Um, you know, Cliff Robinson, God rest his soul botched a 301 fast break that would have put Portland up with under a minute to go. Um, people could have said the pass may have not been the best. Porter should have handed it off to someone else. Regardless, it's a three and one. You got to convert it. Portland gets a block out of nowhere by Kersey to force a shot clock violation. Now you got Terry Porter. Last second shot. He's, he's, he's the man. Like he, he was our most clutch performer and he gets the wide open, like 17 foot jumper, which would have won the game forced to game seven. And it doesn't drop. I mean, that's just kind of the breaks of the game. And I was reading again, another book about um, the Blazers and Porter was like, man, I, I make that shot like nine out of 10 times. Like, I wish I had that shot. We, we, that goes in, we're beating Chicago. Like Portland swept the bulls in that regular season. And they would have had home court advantage. Um, so you look at 90 and 91, like really letting things slip out of your, your hands for whatever reason, Portland had a lot of problems with two Lakers. The first was Byron Scott, and he was he he loved shooting the basketball in the Memorial Coliseum. He shot 60% from the field and 53 from three. And I went back and I looked at the 91 finals um, statistics and like, hey, did he keep that up? No, he was the complete opposite. He shot 28% from the field. And 20 from three in the finals against the Chicago Bulls. Um, that's a tough one to swallow. Then you look at Vladi Divac. Um, his quickness gave Duckworth a lot of fits. Duckworth was better when he could just back his body up against a more stronger, girthier center that could feel his weight. Divac would pull the chair out a bit, causing Duckworth to travel. He would reach around and poke. Um, Duckworth just had a, a really a series to forget. I think he averaged something like four and a half turnovers per game in Portland. I think they probably went to duck too much and, you know, watching a lot of that game six, like they, 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 they forced it into him to start the game. Like I know what they were trying to do. They were trying to build his confidence, but I think at the same time, you almost have to say, big fella, you delivered against us in Utah. This just isn't your cup of tea. Um, and they really tried to force into him. And like, it was either causing, you know, the offense was stagnating, uh, the turnovers were, were, were mounting up. And then, you know, you got the Lakers on the other end, you know, really, really controlling the tempo. Magic Johnson was 
arguably the toughest defender, the toughest player of all time to defend. You've got a six, nine point guard. Um, we had to double him because you could, this was again, back when you could just post up and back down, back down, back down. There was no five second rule. So he could control the court at any point on the, on the floor. And for whatever reason, the Blazers couldn't get it done, but I do take some pride in knowing Portland was on the right path. Uh, again, I, I think had it been a best of nine that they, they get it done, or even if it went to a seventh game, they get it done. They started doubling Divac from the baseline. And I picked that up because I was reading the Jordan rules, which was by Sam Smith details, the 1990, 91 Chicago bulls. Phil Jackson attested to that strategy they saw working on film and they implemented it themselves in their five game series win against the Lakers. Um, so Portland basically gave them the blueprint. We just ran out of time. Uh, but you look at that and you think, okay, how this team start, are we starting to feel like the Buffalo Bills here? Like, you know, always the, the bridesmaid, never the bride. We can get there, but can, can we actually get it done? And then you go to the 91-92 season. This is the team that got the furthest uh, in terms of games played in the finals. They had the worst uh, regular season record, still at 57 wins, which is um, just incredible. But the injury started to mount up. Clyde Drexler's knee flared up towards the end of the season, causing him to miss some time. That would be a reoccurring theme probably over the next – Probably it probably – played a large role in how Clyde Drexler was able to finish out his career. Um, it, it really derailed. Like he still made a couple of all-star teams, but he was never really the same player. It, it was his best season though. And I think that was the reason the Blazers were able to still dominate the Western conferences because Clyde Drexler was an MVP. He finished second to, to Michael Jordan. Uh, he was a member of the dream team. He was first team all NBA voted in as a starter in the all-star game. Like, Clyde, Clyde had arrived like no other Blazer had since since Bill Walton. Um, and I would say like no other Blazer still has currently. Like, yes, Dame has made first team All-NBA. Dame hasn't been voted in as a starter by the fans. And, and Dame hasn't finished second in the MVP. I mean, hopefully he will. But but Clyde was on a Wheaties box. Like, he, he was part of that dream team. Like, this was hand-picked. And then you also look at the development of Cliff Robinson, where we're talking about a player who the year following would win sixth man of the year. The year after that would become a, become an all-star. Like he was ready to shine. But you also look at players like Duckworth, who took a step back. Buck Williams took a step back again. Buck was 30 when we acquired him. He was 32 now. Played a lot of tough years in New Jersey. Jerome Kersey, while he was an absolute money player, wasn't the same Jerome Kersey of, of 88, 89, even 90. Like he played balls to the wall. Um, he, he left everything out there. The toughest practice player we had, heart and soul of the team. Um, it was just bound to catch up to him. And, you know, it, it did a little bit, but the Blazers were still a veteran team. Danny Ainge was still around. You still had guys like Mark Bryant um, off the bench. They were still six or seven deep. But what was really interesting about this team. And there's also another book that, you know, these books are available on PALS or, or, you know, really anywhere it's called um, uh, against the world. And it was written by, I think, Kerry Akers and Dwight James, but it really details that 91 92 season. And you can just go through, you, you can relive that, that, that season through the player's eyes and through their perspectives. Um, you know, a lot of trials and tribulations, um, you know, poor Duckworth thought he was getting traded every other season. Um <laughs> 
uh, it was, I was again, watching one of those games on YouTube and the announcers were, were saying like, Oh, if the Blazers don't win it, Kevin Duckworth said he thinks he's going to be traded. And that was during the 92 season, you know, Duckworth had one more year after that, but he was traded in the off season of 93. So to play with that pressure, I think took a toll on, on the team and, and they were able to, they were still able to get to the finals and really looking back at it, they did it with relative ease. Uh, they got a little bit of revenge against the Los Angeles Lakers. The, this is the one eight matchup again, no magic Johnson due to the HIV. Um, he, he announced his retirement in November of, of that season, but even that series had a little bit of historical context. Uh, if you remember the Rodney King riots were happening right outside um the forum and all, all across uh, Los Angeles, it forced game four to be played two days later uh, on the campus of UNLV. And I was finally able to watch this game. Uh, I found it on YouTube. I had always wanted to watch it. It was a blazer blowout, but they were talking about how, you know, Vegas is, is a big Lakers hub and, you know, the fans were, were really rooting for the Lakers but the Blazers went out and like in the layup line, start throwing down dunks and throughout the game, Clyde had an incredible alley-oop and they were just banging all over the Lakers in that game. And you, there were quite a few Blazer fans towards the end of that one. So that was a little, a uh, little sweet revenge that the Blazers got. Again, they had another uh, former foe in the semifinals, the Phoenix Suns. And to think like, whenever I look back and think, oh man, I wish the Blazers would have won a title they really were that elite though, because the teams in the conference finals they were playing were damn good and they were running through them. Uh, they beat the Suns in five games, including again, they closed out Phoenix's own veterans Memorial Coliseum. It was better known as the Madhouse on McDowell because it got loud. It was a small venue, very intimate, just like the Memorial Coliseum was. That was the double overtime game where at the time I believe it set the record for the most points scored in a playoff game, 153-151, back and forth game. Porter had the incredible, you know, and one to tie it in regulation. And it really just cemented that Phoenix was never going to get over that, never going to get over that hump. Portland was always going to be that bully, just like they were to Utah. And Utah was up next. And back to my point about me believing personally, like I, I know it's probably not a popular opinion, but Terry Porter to me is still better than John Stockton. And he came out in the 92 playoffs, the conference finals, just like gangbusters. He shot the shit out of that basketball in game one and game two. I believe he had like 41 in game one and like 36 in game two, you know, overall for that series, he busted Stockton's ass. Um, In that series, he scored, he averaged 26 points per game over the six game series, which led the team 8.3 assists again, led the team four boards shot 55% from the field and 53% from three. You look at Stockton, 14 points, 11 assists, two rebounds, 40% from the field. Of course, we know Buck Williams is, is doing what he can to, to limit Carl Malone. And I don't know if the announcers were salty because one of them was Cotton Fitzsimmons, who was the coach of the Phoenix Suns. The Blazers had just sent packing, but he was like, oh no, this series is going seven. Blazers can't win on the road. Okay, you know, game six, get down early, fought back. Clyde just bangs it on Mark Eaton. Terry Porter gets a, a and one towards the end, and they're going to the finals. I mean, you're looking – I don't think people realize how impressive this feat is. One, to stay together. 
to have six or seven key players that all stay together that like each other, uh, minimalize injuries. You're able to go to a finals for the second time in three years. And in that other year, you still made it to the conference finals. That's really incredible. Unfortunately, you're going up against the greatest of all time in Michael Jordan. Um, and, and those bulls were even better than the, the previous years. They, they had won 67 games. And that season was what really allowed Chicago, as I mentioned earlier in, in this chat, to have the best record over that three-year span, like the 67 wins. He was the MVP, um, utterly dominant. And, and they were dominant because Scottie Pippen rounded into a dream teamer. Horace Grant took the next step forward. Uh, John Paxson was a marksman. I mean, B.J. Armstrong came off the bench. Bill Cartwright knew his role. This team was fucking good. I mean, there's there's no if, ands, or buts about that. And I would say, without a doubt, the 92 Bulls were, were the best team that I have ever seen a Blazers team face. Yes, better than the 2000 Lakers. Uh, the 92 Bulls were so impressive. Watching that series, they had the length on, on the wings to kind of mess up our passes or to run with us on the break. I mean, you're looking at thoroughbreds and Jordan and Pippen that were able to go stride for stride with us. And it, it really came, came down to a few things. And so this was the other question we got from uh, Donnie Fowler um, at Skate for Blazers who wants to know, was there anything this team could have done to overcome the Bulls in the finals? And while I believe that hurdle would have been the, the highest of, of them all, yes, yes, there was. I mean, it was a six-game series, and I know people are going to look back and probably think that a lot of those games were blowouts or non-contest. They're going to remember the shrug in game one. Yes, it was a 30-point loss. But this Blazer team had their opportunities. They were, I know it's crazy to say, but their game four win at home in Portland was the only home victory by a Western conference team in the NBA finals over a five-year span from 89 to 93, one in 13. So you know how we all view the Western conference as, as the big dogs for the past 10, 20 years, the East had the beasts back in the day. Um, it ran through the Boston, Detroit, Chicago. I mean, it ran through those cities. And I, I think it's it's tough to say we only won one, but Phoenix didn't do it with the best record, the home court advantage. The Lakers didn't do it twice. Um, it, it happens. Um, the Bulls w- were that good. But, yes, I, I do think Portland could have won that series. Um, a couple of factors played uh, key roles in Portland not. Portland played, as I discussed earlier, just with too much pressure. We we did a TBT, I believe, is either this summer or last summer, talking about game four of the finals. And my God, if you have a chance, find that game on YouTube and just watch the NBA on NBC introduction. I mean, clearly NBC intros were god godlike, and Marv Albert, Bob Costas, you know, Dick Enberg, whoever wrote those, the voiceover just it sets the stage. But how they set it up was it was basically like Clyde Drexler, you got to win this title or unless you're a fucking bum. I mean, that, that in so many words. And so you have the media just like constantly spewing this. You got to win a championship, got to win a championship. And it's no different now, but you're looking at a team that had been there in 90, stubbed their toe in 91. You're back there in 92. There was a lot of pressure. And so whenever they had a chance to kind of put Chicago back on their heels or, or go up in the series, they weren't able to do it. Uh, game three was a sloppy game by both teams. Um, Portland wasn't able to take advantage of the home crowd. 
You look at game five after tying up the series uh, after the game four victory, Jordan goes off and they weren't really ever in that one. I think they ended up losing by 10. But on the opposite side of the spectrum, they were great at playing loose. And they had an, they had the best chance, I think, of any Jordan finals opponent to force a game seven. They were up 15 points going to that fourth quarter. I think a lot of Blazer fans, I don't know if this is a good thing to remember, but I think a lot of Blazer fans only remember the the, the game seven in 2000, uh, blowing a fourth quarter lead. But no, no, baby, we've been doing this for a minute. This is our this is our patent that we've got on. We got copyright trademarks and blowing fourth quarter leads. Pippen and four reserves were able to chop that lead down in three minutes. Um, we had a chance. Uh, Drexler was playing great. Kersey was running the break. And it just, I, I don't know what happened. Maybe our, maybe it was just the basketball God saying it, it's time. Like the, the, this is the end of an era, but we had a chance to force a game seven and you never know what could have happened in that series. But I really think Portland could have won had Rick Adelman been a little bit ahead of the curve. And it's hard to blame him for this one. You can blame him for the 1991 game one debacle against the Lakers a little bit tougher to blame him for this one just because teams weren't using players out of their comfort zone. It wasn't a positionless NBA. It was your center, you stay on the block, you're a power forward, you stay foul line um, and in. Okay, you're a point guard, you distribute the ball, you bring it up the floor, yada, yada, yada. Like it was very pigeonholed. This is what you do. Whether it was, it was maybe a last resort, but during game four, Portland found a little, little bit of magic, and I really wish Rick Adelman would have stuck with it. Um, Jerome Kersey had, had committed a flagrant foul on Scott Williams with about like eight minutes to go, seven, eight minutes to go. The Bulls were up eight. We were able to come back, and it was sparked because Cliff Robinson was put at center, and we talked about his versatility. He did it against the Spurs in, in 1990, guarding David Robinson. If you can do it against David Robinson, give me Cliff Robinson on Bill Cartwright any damn day of the week. Portland should have gone small. I think they could have beaten Chicago. Porter, Ainge, Drexler, Kersey, Robinson. That was the five that were that that were the catalyst during that, that fourth quarter in which Portland outscored Chicago 27 to 19 to tie up the series. You know, I really love that lineup. Kersey could have been a, a power forward back in the day. I mean, God knows he was built like an ox. He could run like a horse and he could shoot. He could finish. He could defend. He's he's going to throw his body on defense. He's going to die for loose balls. I think Kersey could have handled Horace Grant. Uh, you got Drexler at, at the three. I mean, Clyde Drexler was a physical specimen. Uh, six, seven could have played the two or the three. It allowed Terry Porter to stay on the floor as a ball handler. Danny Ainge coming up, you know, just making a lot of smart decisions, shooting the basketball, spacing the floor. It, it could have been done. And lastly, more shots for Terry Porter. You know, as we discussed, Porter being the the engine, he only took something like seven shots in, in game three. And it was the really the, the talk of the media going into game four because Porter hit so many big shots in that game two victory. Um, and of course, he just was murdered from three uh, against the, the Utah Jazz, the series prior. At times, Porter was a little too passive. And that was the big knock on Terry Porter is he wasn't, looking for his shot enough when he was the best shooter on the team. He was probably the second best overall player on the team. He was our all-star. We needed him to be a little bit more assertive, but again, there are a lot of mouths to feed 
So it was striking the right balance. But again, if you're looking for what Portland could have done, they should have went smaller. They should have utilized Kersey and Robinson's versatility. And they should have found ways to run more plays for, for Terry Porter. I, I think at times Clyde just ended up with the ball and was like, I'm going to go one-on-one. And it just didn't work out. He's not the one-on-one player that Jordan was. And so Clyde definitely went out of his arsenal uh, a bit in that series, but it wasn't the reason we lost. I just think the Bulls were one, that good, and two, we didn't play perfect. And those were a couple of ways we could have played perfect, but, you know, we didn't. And it's just, it's really interesting to look back on that run, just how dominant we were at home. And then to see us not perform at home in the series we lost, is it's really a, just a strange thing for my, to wrap my mind around. Like if you look over the course of those three years, Portland played 11 series. They were eight and three in the eight series wins a perfect 23 and zero at home against playoff basketball level competition. That's insane. That That's so hard to do. Uh, even the bulls, the Lakers, they were losing Detroit. They lost at home. We were winning in those three series losses, three and six. So that's, that, that's just so hard for me to, to comprehend how dominant we could have been. Um, but we weren't in the series we lost. And, and there, there is one, one other avenue I, I'd, I'd like to discuss before wrapping this up is the, the biggest what if to me. Clearly there's, if Sabonis is able to come over, I think it's lights out game over. Chicago had always had a history of, not playing well against teams with dominant centers. Um, you get Sabonis in there. He's running circles around Bill Cartwright. He's passing from the post. It just opens up the offense. I think you see more of a early 2000s Sacramento Kings, also coached by Rick Adelman, type of motion offense where you've got the bigs able to dissect from, from the elbows, whether it's Weber or Divac. Sabonis would have, would have been able to do that. Like the knock on Portland was slow the tempo down, make them a half-court team, stop their fast break, you stop the Blazers. Well, if you get a player like, you know, Savas, that's not going to happen. But again, with the way the the political relations were between the the nations, that just was never going to happen. The other way was a realistic, a realistic fix. Uh, Charles Barkley had been drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers in 84, just had never been able to get that team over the hump, whether it was a lack of, talent on the roster or going through Jordan and and the Bulls in the East or the Celtics with Larry Bird and Kevin McHale couldn't do it. He, he was pretty vocal though. And he wanted out the three teams that he explicitly stated Portland, the Los Angeles Lakers and the Phoenix Suns. Now in that book, um, against the world that the rumors were at the deadline of the 92 season, could it have been, Jerome and Danny Ainge and Kevin Duckworth for, for Barkley. Um, maybe you have to fix the cap, but you know, Barkley even came to Portland in the off season and flew out, like basically interviewing. Like he's like, I want to come here. So that's interesting to think about because the Lakers thought they had to deal with him with, with James Worthy, but that got pulled at the last minute. And then he ultimately gets traded for Jeff Hornacek. I think Mark West and Andrew Lang, Tim, either, either Mark West or Tim Perry was one of the other two, but Andrew Lang got sent over there as well. And clearly a steal. He went on to become MVP of the 93 season. He led the Suns to their first finals since. And they had the best record. Uh, I, I have 
I struggle thinking about that because if you look at it, Kevin Duckworth really only played one other season with Portland. <clears throat> and Jerome Kersey was gone by the 95 season and he was on, on the decline as well. So if you're looking at it from a basketball perspective, it's an easy yes. But I Jerome Kersey is one of my favorite Blazers of all time. And obviously I, I love Kevin Duckworth. But I don't think anybody, Michael Jordan included, is stopping a four-headed monster of Drexler, Porter, Barkley, and Cliff Robinson. Um, that's not even including guys like, like Buck Williams, who you, Danny Young, who, who you'd still have um, filling out the roster. So that that's something to think about. Like Portland had an opportunity to, to keep it going. Um, I honestly think their 93 roster was one of the best they had. They were able to sign Rod Strickland. Um, they brought in Mario Eli from Golden State, who played fantastic. And I just found out this this fall why we didn't keep him. It's because we wanted to open up salary cap room to sign Chris Dudley. So, you know, like we talked about evening things out, how all of those great moves Jeff Petrie made, you know, that that's kind of a, a stinker there because we traded our center Duckworth for, for Harvey Grant. That really never materialized either. And it was a slow decline. Uh, Drexler's knee flared up again in the 93 season. Um, again, he played extended minutes in the dream team. And so his really played nonstop basketball for 12 months. And then you're starting the season over again. Uh, Jerome Kersey was starting to get banged up. Um, they finished the year in, in the four seed. They had home court advantage. Drexler wasn't able to play in game one. Again, they blew another fourth quarter lead against the Spurs. Drexler came back. They just couldn't. I mean, they won game two. He had like 40 points. But game three and game four, I think game four went to overtime. They could never get the series back to to, to Portland. They, they would have had a chance to go up against the one seed Phoenix Suns. I mean, they, they started out that 93 year like seven or nine and oh. Um, so it could have continued even without Barkley. Like you're just talking about health. And that goes back to the Drazen Petrovic trade because before Petrovic you know, left us, you know, far too soon. He was a third-team All-NBA player in, in the '93 season, so you can say, "Clyde, take your time, brother. Like, let's let's, let's re- rehab, relax. Like, you, you're fine. Drazen, you're going to start and you're going to kill it." Um, you clearly had Porter and Strickland who could have shared point guard duties and you know limited Terry's minutes. Cliff Robinson was ready to take more of the reign from from Jerome. Like, there were ways, but again, that's why it's I used to be a championship or bust fan. Um, maybe the, the 2000 Blazers scarred me. 2001 Blazers scarred me a bit. But the older I get, the further away I get from that. Um, and a lot of it has to do with these 90, 90, 90 91, 92 Blazers. The memories that I have, um, I, I hold the teams so so near and dear to my heart. Like anytime I can find like some memorabilia or artwork surrounding these those teams, you know, I, I keep it. I, I watch the games that we win. I even sometimes watch the games that we lose. And I, you know, I have to think to myself, this team never won a championship, but they're the reason I kind of am who I am to, for, to some extent, to a large extent. Um, so how can I be a championship or bust fan when they didn't win a championship, but they brought me so much joy and it's all about joy. It's all about just enjoying the team that you're watching, whether they're a first round exit or they make it to the finals um, going back and watching and discussing this, you know, during this episode, it's also just realizing how much luck goes into winning a championship. I mean, it just takes an incredible amount of luck to, to get it done, to, to get that 15th, 16th win and hoist up the Larry O'Brien trophy. 
You got to stay injury free. You got to get the right matchups. You got to get hot on the right days. Um, Portland had a lot of luck, but not enough. But in the end, that's okay. And uh, that's kind of my approach with the current Blazers. Like we made the Western Conference Finals. Like that was a 19-year drought of getting to the Conference Finals. And that was incredible. I am so amped for this season. If we win the championship, of course it would be incredible. But, you know, can we get back to the Conference Finals? Like that would be almost just as good of an accomplishment. Like that that's a fun run. Like I remember that run, Sage, in 2019. Being there in the arena, watching a lot of games with you. Um, we were there for Dame's shot against the the Thunder. We watched game seven in, in my blazer room. Like that was incredible. Even though we got swept against the Warriors, like we were there. Our friend Denise was there. We we watched it with him. Like who knows if we'll ever get that chance again. Uh, so just, just enjoy it, it. It's not as much as, as great as it would be to win a title. It, it's not all about that. It, it's all about finding something you love and embracing it. Or listening to how you recanted it. It seems like we were one backup creator away from at least one championship. When, when you talked about how we blew a lead because we didn't have a backup uh, point guard. Who who was the backup point guard in the those scenarios? Because it, it it just seems like damn if we had one more ball handler we could have done some something special. Danny Young came over from the Sonics, and he was I thought he was pretty good in eighty nine ninety. He was actually a really good three point shooter, and he he was he was serviceable. Like there was no no qualms. I think he just started to fall off a little bit um, as players tended to do in that era, like once you hit 30, 31 medicine, isn't as good training, isn't as good as yeah, it is totally. today. Recovery isn't as good as it is today. So uh, it just kind of fell off a bit. And again, I think that's why I said the Danny Ainge trade was both a gift and a curse because you got hmm. a battle tested veteran who could shoot the shit out of the basketball space, the floor, but he's a two guard and you already had a backup two guard, a really damn good one. And Again, you're left without a backup point guard. And so I also think what happened in 91 as well is Wayne Cooper came back. So we ended up trading Wayne and like Fat Lever, and it was just a horrible trade for Kiki Vandeway. Well, Wayne came back and he was on, on his last legs, but he was really solid in 1990. Great at blocking shots, could finish, um, good rebounder, just was really giving a strong 15 minutes a night. Um, he was really not the same player after 1990. Like that was all he had left in the tank. He stayed on those rosters, but I thought we could have used another backup big, um, especially in that Laker series. Uh, if you're looking against like, how do we match up against, you know, AC green and Vladi Divac and, and Sam Perkins, like they had a lot of modern bigs on, on that roster. Um, look at Perkins stretching the floor. You look at Divac, uh, you know, being a, a playmaker out of the five. Uh, that was tough. We really only had Duckworth. I mean, Mark Bryant, Mark Bryant was like a, a decent backup for like, he's going to come in, he's going to rebound and play defense, but probably not going to hit too many shots. And he still is a, a power forward. Like we, we didn't really have a center. Uh, so then you're like, okay, is, is Cliff your center can, you know, okay. If Cliff guarding one, who's going to guard the other. So, you know, there's, there was probably, you know, a couple of holes, holes that they had. And maybe looking back at those box scores too, like you would see, especially in the, the the championship series or even against the Lakers, like the seven man rotation, you got players playing like 40 minutes 
plus Buck Williams. I remember reading was like, you're not taking me out and Adelman didn't take him out. I mean, that's Buck Williams. I, I would, I would, I would go with what he wants to do as well. But, but um, for a team that was as deep as they were, I, I think they could have maybe made a consolidating trade um, and brought in one more, like, so you have like a great eight man rotation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, you know, sometimes you just don't have the the horses you need. And I, I think that it, it might have been the center, but I, I, I definitely think that we needed what, uh, another playmaker just to spell uh, Porter. And uh, I, I think what we should do is you should share some of the uh, the YouTube games on our Twitter, Holy Backboard, at Holy Backboard, and share some of what you've done to entertain yourself for the last few months and uh, share it with people. Cause I think this, this podcast is awesome. It's great to, to share the, your memories with, with people, but to see these teams and ha- how they were constructed and see how great Drexler was at his prime and, and TP and the entire team. I think that would be awesome to share it with our, with everyone that's listening and uh, all of the community. Because those those scenes were special, and it's obvious that they were special to you. Yeah, and I think you look at a guy like Clyde Drexler, and maybe he gets forgotten a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I Mark Spears responded to a tweet was like, "Who was the most like forgotten superstar in basketball?" And he was like, "Larry Bird and Clyde Drexler." And he's he's right. Uh, Drexler, there's been updated lists that have him like behind players like Ray Allen and Vince Carter and Reggie Miller. And I, I just, I cringe because I don't think people appreciate the absolute all around brilliance that Drexler had was his shot. Ugly as sin. Yes. Could he only drive right? Yes. Okay. But he was probably the best passer on the team. Unselfish. One of the best finishers of all time. Uh, he's great in, in the passing lanes, a great rebounder. I mean, he was a prototypical shooting guard, like that six, seven, uh, just towered over everybody else. I mean, he hit big buckets. He really could do everything. I mean, there's a reason why Damian Lillard is still chasing Clyde Drexler in the record books. Drexler was that dude. And then you you get a player we didn't really talk too much about. And it's unfortunate. Obviously, there's only so much time, but I mean, Jerome Kersey, his running break, his running partner on the fast break, like there's times like when you I watch those highlights, I still get chills watching Kersey and Drexler finish on the break. Drexler was a little bit more finessed. Kersey was force and raw. I mean, absolute raw power. Like Kersey always showed up in the big games. Um, like there is a poster that Nike released in, in, I think, 1990, that really summed up the Portland Trailblazers. So it was their three Nike athletes. It was uh, basically had Terry Porter running running at you, and it had Buck and Jerome Kersey like, running right behind him in almost like a, a, a triangle. And the, the caption was just, uh-oh. Because when opposing defenses saw Portland on the break, it was lights out. It was game over. Like they were able to change momentum in the bat of an eye. I mean, they could go from a two point game to a 12 point game and and the arena was about to blow its top off and and it was over. Like they were able to change a game so quickly. It was the most vaunted fast break 
that I've ever seen. And really what, what basketball is all about to me, it's just like that, that entertainment, just that emotion. Like I, as someone who's never been able to dunk, seeing people who can dunk it is still fascinating and just gets me out of my seat. So, um, and I wish I was able to, to be around and actually watch those games in person because it would have been a sight to behold. Yeah. It's crazy how long you talked. I was getting it like, I was like, damn, how is he not taking a breath? Like that, that was crazy. Cause you definitely passed the 30 minute threshold. I don't know. I can't see how long it has been, but it has been quite a lengthy time of you uh, talking about some very special teams. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because I think every person has got that, that one thing like that their brain just has too much space. Like if you look at somebody's brain and what, what it's allocated for, and there's always like maybe like a, a certain color that's like miscellaneous. Well, mine's the, the trailblazers and specifically the early nineties blazers. Like that's taking up my miscellaneous part. And even when I was a kid, my, uh, my teachers told my, my parents, like, you know, Dustin just, he's not reading as much as he should. Like, I don't know what's going on. And my mom's like, well, give him a sports illustrated and he'll be able to tell you front to back cover to cover what will happen. Like I was a sports kid. Like I was a basketball junkie. Like we talked about the NBA and NBC though. There were triple headers. Like I would sit down, I would just watch those. Like I would get so Mm. geeked for those games. Like I, I absolutely loved the game of basketball. Um, and it's just kind of strange how it happens. Like my parents don't really have a tie to the sport. Um, I just found it or it found me and I, I kind of fell in love with it. And it's, it's still to this day. Telly bean. She's like, ah, feed me. Shout out to Dustin for being so willing to express what has been such a big part of his uh, life. We are available on iTunes, Google play, Stitcher, Himalaya podcast. Dash radio, nothing but net radio, Tuesdays, two to three, four to five Eastern. And thank you so much for listening. And we will be back to talk about the current team pretty soon because I got some stuff I would definitely want to talk about. So thank you so much for listening. You can also find this podcast on holybackboard.com. I have a oh, upcoming yeah. blog post that I'm going to discuss. Uh, my top, I'm the apparently I'm the aesthetics guy uh, on the on the podcast, so I'm going to be. If we're comparing your aesthetics to mine, yeah, you're definitely the the. the so one. I'm gonna be uh, doing something about the, the my favorite courts um, of the NBA season. So a couple teams got a couple of new courts, hardwood classics. Portland got a new court, so I, I love that stuff. That'll be out there, and also the schedule drops tomorrow. We're recording this Thursday. Night. Oh, for Elsies? They are dropping it uh, tomorrow at noon on the jump, so it should be out there. They're releasing it in halves. So we'll probably be right back with you this weekend talking about the schedule, talking about what we expect out of training camp. The Blazers have done a pseudo media day. Uh, a lot of the players have came through and done a video mm-hmm. conferencing interviews, speaking at, at lengths, various lengths. Um, a lot of, a lot of good things came out of that, that I, I think we'll have uh, our pulse on and Sage, the first preseason game next Friday, ESPN against the Kings. I can't wait. Quick uh, last prediction. Who are we opening the season oh, against? Oh, yeah, this is something good because we will not know. Oh, God. So we already got shammed. Didn't get an opening night game on national television. 
or didn't get one the following day on the 23rd. We didn't get a Christmas Day game. Um, so, man, oh, it's so hard to tell because the Christmas games were so random. They, that kind of threw me for a loop. I want you to guess first. I want you to guess first. I'm going Nuggets. I think that I think that they, the NBA wants to really push that rivalry because of the, 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 the mastery of 2019. I think that now both teams are ready to compete. I think it's going to be against Denver. Oh, man. We play Denver a million times a year, so why wouldn't it be the first game? Yeah, you really put me on the spot here. Um, I will go ahead and I will guess... I'll guess the Los Angeles Lakers. I, I know they play on the 22nd, but it's not uncommon for teams to play back-to-back. I think we may actually no. I take that back because if we were playing the Lakers, that definitely would be a national TV game. And we didn't get that on the 23rd. Um, I think they're setting us up to play the Kings again. I know we're playing them right now in the preseason. We also play the Nuggets. Um, I'll guess the Kings get local. It's the closest game that we have possible. So uh, that's my guess. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a good guess. It's just, it would be a lot sexier against the Lakers than the, the, the Kings. But as, as, as Dane pointed out in his, his interview, and we're getting off topic again, which we're always we're, we're known to do. Uh, we got to get off to a hot start. The years we perform well, we get off to good starts. So I would, I'll take a couple of cupcakes. Then let's get into the meat and potatoes of our schedule. Mm-hmm. All right. I, I think we're, we're really out this time. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening me talk about my favorite thing that's not family wherever you may be this is bill shinley good night everybody let's go, let's go.